Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray simply this this morning as we gather. We pray that you would open our eyes afresh to your wonder, uh, to your majesty, to your glory, to your compassion, to your graciousness. Open our eyes afresh to see it, our hearts afresh to receive it, that we might respond with delight and with devotion. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been uh, well said, I think, that we are, uh, as human beings, hardwired for um, awe. Uh, I read in The Guardian uh, recently a new type of therapy um, called ecotherapy. And uh, the idea is that, um, that people are, you know, are taken into places that are magnificent, 
that are splendid to look at, and it, it brings a sort of sense of he- healing, of, of well-being. And uh, the person writing on it uh, said this, um, quote, The egocentricity of clients is often reduced by awareness of something much bigger than them, whether it be mountains or wide open plains or huge skies. The feeling that the client is the center of the universe is called into question by the sheer scale and complexity of nature. End quote. And uh, you know, I think that is true. I think most people would testify to that. That being surrounded by wonder and grandeur and beauty is—you just—you just know it. It's just—it's just healing. It's healthy. We were in holiday um, uh, in the northeast of uh, France uh, a week or two ago. We were in the Vosges Hills and sort of small mountains and there's forests and lakes and all the rest of them, big skies and beautiful views. And it is just restorative and healing and and refreshing. And of course, the Bible explains this. Uh, being uh, removed from the center of the universe, as it were, is good for us because we don't belong in the center of the universe. Uh, it's destructive when we put ourselves at the center of the universe. In, in a sense, that is the heart of sin, isn't it? Putting ourselves at the center of the universe. Or at creation is good. God has given us creation to be awed by it. But of course, the idea of awe of creation is that it leads to a greater awe in its creator which brings a greater healing, brings true healing and life in all its fullness. I've uh, given this quote before, but I think it's so helpful. John Piper, uh, speaking on this, says this, No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Well, because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. The point is this, we were made to know and treasure the glory of God above all things. The healing of the soul begins by restoring the glory of God to its flaming, all-attracting place at the center of our lives. And I think that's what Psalm 145 is all about. It is, I think, a call to behold afresh the splendor of God. Uh, to delight in his character, to delight in his works, his mighty deeds, and then to, uh, as we delight in it, to respond in life-giving praise and worship and thanksgiving. We're going to walk very quickly through the psalm. As I read it and meditated on it, I I got a sense of movement, a a dynamic whereby I think the psalm moves from a personal praise, personal worship, that's verses 1 to 3, into corporate worship in verses 4 to 9, and then into corporate witness, verses 10 to the end. Well, those are the headings that I'm going to use to navigate us through uh, the psalm this morning. So first, verses 1 to 3, personal worship. And the point here is very simple, but it is profound and significant, and that is that Christian faith is personal. Christian faith is personal. Now, that's not to say that it is insular, and that is not to say that it is private, as we'll see in a minute, but it is personal. A personal dependence on, delight in, devotion to the Lord our King is the source of our life, and it is the source that becomes a spring of life towards others. Or to change the metaphor, personal devotion is the earth in which we grow. As Christians, notice how the psalm starts. Do you see that repetition of the I? I will exalt you. I will praise your name. 
I will praise and extol you. It's the foundation of the psalm because it seems to me it's the foundation of the Christian life. It is the personal reception of God as king, the personal response of praise to the one whose greatness no one can fathom, to the one who uh, sculpted the starry skies and yet surrendered his son for our sake. Such majesty, such mercy moves the psalmist and uh, moves us to delight and devotion. Everything else flows from this. And yet, how easy it is, as I meditated on this psalm, how easy it is for me, for this glorious truth, the majesty and the mercy of the God of the universe, this glorious truth to go from being the awesome, all-attracting fire at the center of my life to the brazier that is over there and one sort of warms oneself around when one feels one needs a bit of warmth and then to the ornamental candle that sits on the table simply as a decorative thing. As I thought through this psalm, I was reminded of a book I read um, a little while ago, 18 months ago or so, uh, a book about the particular dangers that there is in um, full-time paid ministry. And the writer said there that uh, one of the dangers is that the Bible can cease to be a mirror in which we see ourselves and become just a tool for ministry, a textbook that we teach out of. And I have to say, as I meditated on this psalm, I was struck afresh by that. As I read verses 1 to 3, I will preach you, I will extol you. I I, I thought, how often is it the case as I look at the watch, as I look at the diary, as I see Sunday approaching, the Bible becomes less about the word of God to me Less about an encounter with the living God to transform me and more about what am I going to say on Sunday morning. You know, it's less about spiritual food. It's more about sermon fodder. It's not about me praising God. It's me thinking, well, how am I going to preach him? Less about extolling God and more about, well, how am I going to explain this? And personal devotion gives way to a sense of just sort of professional duty. And I was challenged by that. Those are the dangers for me, and I feel them. Uh, perhaps, I don't know, some of us here this morning might be regular teachers at Sunday school or regular um, teachers in house group, and we might have felt that. As we've opened the scriptures to prepare, it's been more about what am I going to say on Sunday morning, what am I going to say at house group, and less about how can this delight me and transform me? How can I hear the Lord to me such that I am delighted in him? And then, of course, we teach out of that, as all good ministry is. And I was encouraged to think again about how we do that. How we begin by saying, Father, before I speak this to others, speak to me. Please speak to me. Please change me. Please transform me. May your word to others first be a word to me. Uh, It made me think, does God still awe us, friends? Does he still awe us? Do we let him awe us? Do we come to the Bible expecting to be awed? Expecting to be warmed, expecting to be delighted, expecting to meet majesty and mercy in equal measure. Do I put myself in a place where he can awe me with his majesty and his mercy? Do I come, for instance, conscious of my sin so that I can be delighted afresh by his gospel? Such that the cross, as I said this morning at the 8 o'clock, doesn't become some 
historical artifact, but it continues to be an ongoing reality in my life, such that I'm constantly delighted by it. Am I, conscious, am I daily conscious of his mercies towards me? Do I take time to bring them to mind and to give thanks just for the food that I eat and the clothes that I wear and the daily goodnesses that come my way? Do I mark them? Do I remember them? Do I delight in them? It's not always easy, is it? We can help one another in this because this life-giving awe in God is supposed to be passed on and built up in community, and that's verses 4 to 9, corporate worship. Have a look. The psalm moves from personal praise to a corporate passing on, a corporate commending of God to one another. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They celebrate your goodness, verse 7. They joyfully sing of your righteousness. So here then is God's design for our faith communities. Whether that's the church family, when we gather like this, or whether it's the home, in extended family settings. Part of the purpose of being together is to speak and to sing of God's greatness and his goodness. So when we gather like this, as a church community, we remember the words of Paul in harmony with Psalm 145 in the letter to Colossians. You remember he says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. He's just, he's just picking up Psalm 145 and the other psalms too. He's saying that when we gather, one of the principal ways we worship God is by encouraging one another, by commending God to one another, by passing the great truths of God, his deeds and his works and his goodness on to one another. And that means, for instance, when we sing, we sing songs that are about God. And we don't just sing to God, but equally importantly, the Bible says, we sing songs that are about God to one another. And the music is there to make those truths memorable so that we hold them. We worship God when we come together. One of the principal ways we worship him is by ministering to one another. There's something here, I think, about the importance of testimony. um, Because it's more than just teaching. Teaching is foundational. But the the psalm is about commending God. I got that sense about testimony, about being a community of, of story. Of, of, of making notes of God's goodness to us in the week and actually coming to church thinking, I want to share that with somebody. I want to tell that particular story of God's goodness to me in such a way that it commends him. Uh, I know that Dan is very keen that we increasingly as a church family make space in our services to have testimonies from the front and I think that's got to be a good and right thing. I know Monday mums um, uh, have this God, God in my life slot. I know people are hugely appreciative of that where people come and speak about how God has been at work in their life. That is a commending of God to one another. That's exactly what we should be doing when we come together. Of course, it's what coffee time is partly about. Uh, It's a time of, of, of commending God to one another. This was on my plate this week. This is how the Lord helped me in this. Let's be people who commend ourselves, uh, commend the Lord to each other, not ourselves. Let's be people who commend the Lord uh, to one another. And of course, the church family, uh, the family at home as well. Uh, Family life at home, the extended family. I was reading a a report by Theos, which is a a Christian think tank. I have no idea what a think tank is, but anyway, it is a think tank. And they were writing about, they had written a report called Passing on the Faith. And uh, they said this, they quoted some European values survey 
it shouldn't have made me smile. It kind of did make me smile. It also saddened me. It went like this. Um, quote, the European Values Survey presented uh, respondents with a list of 11 qualities that children can be encouraged to learn at home. Of the 505 self-declared Anglican respondents, 11% listed religious faith as a priority, compared to 94% that identified good manners. I thought that was, um, yeah, I shouldn't have made me smile, but it did. Um, but actually, it shouldn't, because <laughs> that is the sad, I don't know who those particular respondents were, of course, but I mean, uh, that is a sadness. Um, that is a sadness. We want to be those who commend the Lord uh, as our supreme good, as the one who is majestic and awesome and wonderful and glorious and gracious. And the point the report makes is that one of the reasons why they, thought, they think that some people are hesitant to pass on the faith sort of explicitly at home is because we're very worried about indoctrinating. And of course the report made the point very obviously that well, you're going to do that whether you know it or not. <laughs> that, that, that no one, what, what, however you live, tells a story. The report put it like this. Um, no child enters adolescence and adulthood unaffected by the overarching story that they learn in home. In other words, our children will learn about God from us, whatever we do. Either they'll learn that he's pretty peripheral, or they'll learn that he's wonderful and central, depending on uh, how we live. Parents, it went on to say, remain the primary agents for the transmission of belief uh, and behavior. And it talked about the influence of grandparents and the wider family and godparents and, and the uh, positive role in faith formation of the extended family. That report, and more importantly, this psalm, reminds us how significant, how important it is that we be people who are seeking to commend the Lord together when we gather like this, but also in our families. And that is not easy. Um, and uh, I am a complete novice at that, and I make mistake after mistake after mistake, and I uh, lose my nerve. But I am increasingly uh, committed to it and com- increasingly persuaded of its significance. And that is why as a church we want to be those who are helping each other in this task of commending the Lord to our children and to those we know, if we're godparents or grandparents or whatever else uh, it might be. We need each other in this. And so we have faith at home, that slot that Leslie gave and the things that we do, the little courses that we run and increasingly the resources that we put on our website. We want to be helping each other in this. It is not easy. We need each other. But we want to be encouraging each other, helping each other, sharing ideas. And we can commend God in all sorts of ways. We don't need to sit with a book of systematic theology on our lap. If, that's not your, if it is your thing, then great. If it's not your thing, then we don't need to be doing that. But just we commend God in, in little things, don't we? In saying grace so that we're thankful for the food. We do, it, we do it by being quick to apologize to our children when we do wrong because it shows that we're a people of repentance and faith and that God is gracious. Uh, we do it when we thank God for the day, when we pray for a journey, whatever it might be. Uh, little things show that actually God is not sitting out there for us, but he's right at the center. Finally, corporate witness. So it's personal devotion. It's uh, a corporate passing on of the faith in the church life, in family life. And then corporate witness. You see how the uh, psalm goes on, verse 10. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, verse 12, so that all people may know of your mighty acts. I think the movement of the psalm now is, is into corporate witness. See, as members of God's glorious kingdom, we're to extol kingdom life such that our lives become, if you like, a wish-you-were-here postcard. 
You know those postcards you write on holiday? Or at least the postcards you hope you're going to write on holiday, isn't it? When your sun is shining, uh, beach is sandy, mountains high, food great, that sort of thing. That's what you're hoping before you set off you're going to write. Those are the wish you are here. You're, you're commending the place you are at in such a way that it, it attracts people to it. And it seems to me the psalm is saying, look, God's kingdom is a glorious kingdom to be a part of. He's a glorious Lord to have. Uh, did, did you see that? In ver- we haven't got time to look at it. But in verses 13 to 20, what, what we get is a big uh, picture, a portrait of life in God's kingdom. It, it, it's life in a kingdom where God lifts up those who are bowed down. It's, it, it's a picture of God's ability to revive hope when hope seems gone. And how many Christians down through the centuries have testified to God's ability to restore hope when all seemed hopeless. And of course, that's our prayer for uh, situations all around the world at the moment, and particularly in Sierra Leone, as we'll see a little bit later on. It's a God who provides an open hand. It's a picture of generosity. It's a beautiful picture. Uh, In God's kingdom, uh, he is near to those who call on him. He delights to answer prayer and to be an ever-present help in trouble. He's the God who satisfies. He's the one who satisfies us in a way that means that our contentment isn't tied to our circumstances and therefore is not fragile. It's a God who saves, who turns lives upside down, who breaks the power of sin and destructive behaviors and brings hope in life and in death. He's a God who watches over you know, how much physical, emotional, psychological distress flows from that I'm all alone in the universe sense that so many people have. Not so for those of us who are members of God's kingdom. The Lord watches over us like a mother hen watches over her chicks. We are watched over people. How can I make this, as I've meditated on this psalm again, I was struck, personally challenged again. How can I make this known to people if I'm not spending time making it known to myself? You know, if I'm not meditating on these things and just remembering them afresh and remembering times when I've, I've had tangible expressions of this towards me and, and not just make, remembering them and making a note of them such that they don't just fly straight out of my head. You know how it is, you pray for something, you get a deliverance from something or you get some help or you get grace for the day to get through a difficult circumstance and you're thankful and then a week later with the hurly-burly of life, it's forgotten. And that sense of just actually slowing down and making a note of these things, such that I can come to church and commend God to other people, such that I'm in a power to talk to other people about it. Um, Am I transparent? Do I extol him for what he does in my life? I was trying to think, when was the last time I said to somebody, a neighbor, somebody who's not not a Christian, um, actually I was really worried about X, or I've had X on my plate, and I, I prayed about it. And, you know, this passage of scripture I found very helpful. And you know what? Actually, uh, the Lord really helped me through that. Yeah, that is just not a normal part of my conversation with people. I never say that. Funny enough, I, I, I was thinking about how often I say it at house group. Do I take the time before house group to come with a, a story or a sign of, of God's grace to me and commend him? That's very rare. Very rare would I say that to somebody who's outside the church. And yet, and yet the psalm says, let's extol him. Let's commend him for his goodness. Let's remember it. And share it with people, such that people look at life in the kingdom, they see what it's like to live under one who is all-powerful and yet at the same time all-personal, and our Heavenly Father. Not that life is easy, of course, not that it is comfortable, but it is good. I'm loved, and I'm lifted up. I'm guarded, and I'm guided, I'm satisfied, and I'm saved, and I'm watched over, such that I have peace. 
And when I take the time to reflect on the greatness of God who framed the starry skies and the mercy of God who surrendered his son that he might lavish all of this love and all of these blessings even on me, well then I know the delight that heals and the devotion that frees and the desire to make him known to other people. And verse 21, verse 21 is our only response, isn't it? My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Amen.